We are covering Barak, who um, we could have also put in Samson in this one, but he took up all my time. But he and Samson are kind of in the same boat in some areas. Not completely, just in some areas. So we'll, uh, we'll take a look at him. So we're going to be spending most of our time in the book of Judges. But let's read over here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, who we covered last time, and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions. Now, as we go through Barak, there's actually three characters that come to prominence here, and he seems to get the least amount of glory out of all of them. So it's interesting why Hebrews picks him for the book instead of Deborah or um, the woman who actually killed the king. But let's uh, begin here in Judges chapter 4, verse 1. When Ehud was dead, he is a judge previous. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Horesheth, Hogoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, and it could also be woman of, not just wife of, was judging Israel at the time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, uh, palm, tree, palm tree, I'm sorry, of Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. I imagine her purpose for sitting under a tree was for shade, but at least that gave her a point of location, and she apparently would sit there and judge between the different matters that we had. Now, most of the time we see that a judge is... Um, uh, selected for the nation of Israel, they were one who would deliver them. But her, she's spoken more about the judging that she would do between the right and wrong cases, I guess, and things that would come up. But this particular king who reigned in Hazor, he is Jabin, king of Canaan, it seems that the kings of this particular area take this as their name. So it's not like that is his particular name because we have the same name of the king back when Joshua was around when he wiped them out. Now the group when Joshua was there was much larger when they wiped them out than it is now. They talk about, uh, where is his number? 900 chariots of iron. Well, they had 20,000 when Joshua was in there. So the, the numbers are, are um, much smaller and Joshua wiped them out pretty good, but not completely. And they have regrouped since then. And in that regrouping, they gained enough strength that they oppressed Israel for, I believe it said, 20 years. And then the children of Israel cried out. Now, the reason they got oppressed was, of course, they followed after worshiping the idols of the nations that they were supposed to displace. They didn't displace them, and they eventually began worshiping their idols. And so judgment came. But they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent someone to to deliver them, and that's where we pick up the story here. Now, I put this in your outline. We had uh, put it in for you before, but just sort of as a reminder, because as I look back over the the uh, outlines and so forth, it was uh, six and a half years ago, last time we took a look at this, this story, and it was a lot more years before that. So 
This is not one of those common stories that we usually go to a whole lot, but Judges is not one of those books that you go to for enlightenment and encouragement. And it's kind of a dark book with a few spots of, of uh, good things happening here and there. But Judges illustrates the difference between religious reformation and spiritual revival. The difference between religious reformation and spiritual revival. Reformation temporarily changes outward conduct. Revival permanently alters inward character. Of course, you know which one God goes for. But we sometimes are satisfied with reformation when God is going for revival. And what we have with Israel is that many times just the outward character, the outward actions are changed. The inward character is not changed. And that's what God is out to, to do. Now, it says that they uh, harshly oppressed or severely oppressed, depending upon your translation. This is the strength and the force that was being used against them. Now, Deborah was the judge. She and one other person are said to be both prophet and judge. Anybody take a guess as to who that was? Samuel. Samuel is the only other one that we are told, not that he was the only one who did it, but the only one we are told recorded in the Bible was both prophet and judge. There are only four other prophetesses. I don't know if that's quite a word, but that's the one I use because there's more of them there. Uh, named in the Bible. We had Miriam. We had, yeah, I didn't write this in there. You can write them in there if you, if you care to. But Miriam over in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20. Huldah in 2 Kings 22 and verse 14. The wife of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 8 and verse 3. And Anna in Luke chapter 2 and verse 36. There were probably more women who were prophets than we are told of, just like there were probably more men than we are told of as well. But those are the four that are recorded. There are also two false prophetesses. And uh, Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 14 has uh, Noadiah, N-O-A-D-I-A-H. I think I pronounced that right. And, of course, the very famous one, Jezebel in Revelations chapter 2 and verse 20. But Deborah is the one we are looking at here along with Barak. So in verse 6, Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Now, if she calls for him, she must have some authority in the land. She calls for the guy who's head of the army, apparently he's head of the army, and calls for him and he comes. So he has some kind of, uh, she has some kind of authority to the people there, being a judge, that they respect and that they, um, they recognize. So Barak comes. She doesn't go to him. She calls him to come to her. And said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. Now she speaks, she is not giving him a prophecy, she is not giving him a word of the Lord. She is speaking something to him that apparently he's already heard. Has not the Lord said? This is what God said. And he agrees, apparently, with it. Yeah, that's what God said. So God must have spoken this to him. And maybe he knew it and just was uh, checking out the word, making sure this is God. 
or maybe he knew it but wasn't sure when he was supposed to do this. I don't know what. Nothing's really acknowledged there. All that we do know is that he apparently knows this. So she reminds him of it, calls him on this, whatever it might be. Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army. So God is saying, I'm going to deploy this enemy army against you. How would you like to hear that? i got some enemies, and I'm going to set them all against you. But it's okay, because I'm going to deliver them into your hand. And that's what he says here at the end. I will deliver him into your hand. So this is the call in the battle. There's a promise with it that they will be delivered. Verse 8, And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Oh man, that is not good. <clears throat> now remember, who makes it into the Hebrews Hall of Faith? It's Barak. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> if you go with me, I'll obey God. But if you won't go with me, I won't obey God. That's I'll tell you what, that's dangerous territory. That's just not a good place to, to be normally. But that's what he says. No hesitation on his part. All right, let's go do this thing. Uh, now, they know there's multitudes from the, the other, other people. He's supposed to bring 10,000. We know that there was 900 chariots of, um, that, were, that were in the battle. So they have chariots. I've heard estimates that, you know, there's one horse to chariot up to three horses per chariot i don't know how many horses they have per chariot but uh, we'll say there's somewhere between one and three and that's a lot of horses nothing like joshua had faced they don't have horses and they don't have chariots of iron so uh, i guess the best equivalent we can think of today is uh, one side has tanks and the other side does not And if you just have infantry and you just line up all your people and they have these um, chariots with horses, well, they put stuff on the wheels that stick out. They just kind of roll through your inventory and take out your guys. They don't need to be going there with swords and all that sort of stuff. They can just run through them and take them out. So if you've got 900, imagine 900 stretched out along and they just start coming. How are you going to run away from that? So for... uh, to defend Barak here some, he apparently has no problem going into battle. But he wants someone to go with him that he has more confidence they can hear from God. He's already heard from God. He already got the word from God. But he wants somebody else to go with him so that he can depend upon them to hear from God. So she said, I will surely go with you Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, that doesn't seem to bother Barak. He doesn't seem to have any problem with it at all. Yeah, that's fine. I don't need the glory. I don't want to get credit for the whole thing. That's fine. And, and, and I'm sure at this point, if you are thinking, I'm asking you to go along with me, and she is saying, well, a woman's going to get credit for this, who you think is going to get credit? I'm thinking she is. We don't know about this other woman. He's probably thinking that she's going to get credit. And he's okay with that. That's fine. 
You can get all the credit for this. That's all right. I don't care. Let's just go in there and uh, deliver the children of Israel. Let's obey God and do what we're supposed to be doing. But I, I just want to have you come along. Now, should God have warned Barak of what he was about to give up? If God immediately pronounces the judgment on, well, you're not going to get the glory on this, don't you think there should have been some warning? <laughs> Apparently, God doesn't think so. And He says, uh, all right, fine, if you're going to say that, then this is being taken away from you. It is always best to just obey God. Whatever He says to do, it's just best to go out there and do it. We raise questions. I mean, Moses raised some questions and God entertained some of those questions. But he did get to the spot and said, that's it. And Gideon raised some questions. We saw some of those things. Um, and God seemed to deal pretty patiently with him for most of those questions. But it does seem that God has a, has a limit. And on this one, apparently the limit was one. That was, that was it. How many questions did Moses get to ask God before... Uh, <laughs> His limit wasn't one. And and he didn't get the, the wrath of God or the anger of God for, for a little while on that one. And Gideon, I think there was more leniency on, on Gideon than there was here on Barak. So he says, all right, I'll go. We'll go and do this thing, but uh, I need you to come with me. And <clears throat> she says, all right, I'll go. Actually, she says, surely I'll go. She may have been planning on going along the whole time. I don't know. But he wanted to make sure so that's where we leave off with that. So just do what God says, as He says, and when He says, or something will be lost. That's not what you what you want to have. So verse verse ten, and Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedish. He went up with ten thousand men under his command, and Deborah went with him. Now, those particular tribes are probably called out because they are the closest in proximity to get from where they are to where he is. But um, I've heard some um, things mentioned that other tribes apparently did get involved. But these are the two. He says, call them from there. You need 10,000. Now, if God says to go with 10,000, that doesn't mean go with 12. Nor does it mean go with 5. It means go with 10. So that's what he, he gets. Now, from what we pick up in the passage, even though we're not given a number on the number of soldiers that are on the other side, they are called a multitude, so we can assume that they are a lot more than 10,000. We know that they had the 900 chariots. That's at least one guy on each chariot. So that's 900 there, but apparently they have a, a lot more guys beside that. So uh, they probably had some archers, probably had some infantrymen. They may have had some guys just on horseback by themselves. But Israel, they don't have any of that. Now remember, this is the this is the group that's been beaten up on them. It's not the entire army from the king. The king has more of an army, and it, it takes them a little while to subdue all that. So it's a it's a part, and they thought that this was enough to subdue this little rebellious group that they've got. And they didn't think they would have any problem taking them out with this group. And they were wrong, but that's what they thought. Now, Heber. The Kenite, remember we talked about the Kenites before, uh, the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree of Zanum, which is beside Kedish. And they reported to 
Sisera, the Barak had, uh, the Barak had, uh, the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Horosheth, Hagoyim, to the river Kishon. Now this is just, verse 11 just seems to be something that's just kind of thrown in here. And now Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobad, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanium. Now this um, this guy, just for some reason, just up and moved his family from the south, which is where the Kenites were, to the north. For what reason? Does God prod him? Look, I need you to move. Does he get mad at his relatives and just want to move away? I don't know if you're mad at your relatives. Why make the move from the south country all the way up to the north country? That would seem like that's a little overkill. Um, but, you know, we're not given any reason. No reason at all. We're just told that, hey, he just all of a sudden one day said, you know what, family? We're moving. And um, we're going to get out of here. Kind of like a jig clapping, clamping thing. Yeah. Hey, we got money now. We're moving. We go out to Beverly Hills, find ourselves a mansion, sit in there. They just move away. Well, they moved away, but you know, they, they were kind of like an oddball and the, <laughs> they just never fit in because they were still living like they were before. Well, we got this group and all of a sudden they, they just up and move. And now they're in this spot. Can you imagine being his, in his family? Why did we move again? Why are we here? We don't know anybody here. The southern country was a lot better than the north country. I mean, the picture I always get from Israel is that the southern country is much more desirable than the north country. That they worship God more than the, than the north country did. If you're going to fall into idolatry, it's the northern tribes that did it the most. I mean, the upper north. And this is where they are. They're in the upper north. I heard somebody relate to this, and I'm not exactly sure where this came from, but it's kind of like if you were in Florida and moved up to the New England area. That kind of a move for us today. Now, it's not exactly that because Israel is about the size of New Jersey. So it's kind of like moving from South Jersey to North Jersey. Now, I've been up and down New Jersey so many times. I know South Jersey, Central Jersey, and North Jersey. And there is no way without a call of God, a couple of prophets, and a threat of violence that would get me to move from South Jersey to North Jersey. I would have to know it's God because I don't like North Jersey. I've been up there and every time I was up there doing deliveries, I couldn't wait. Dear Lord, get me out of here. I just wanted to get out of North Jersey. I just didn't, I didn't like the, I didn't like the cities. I didn't like the towns, the people, not not all the people. You live in North Jersey and you're hearing this. I'm not saying that you're nasty, but the people I was dealing with were all nasty people. They were angry. They were mean. And they, uh, dealing with the business people, they'd just as soon kill the guy down the road who had a business like theirs as help him. They were that fierce. I mean, some of the words that they spoke were right along those lines. Down in South Jersey, they just, uh, if they were, I told you before the story, if they're out of crabs down in the, the, one of the places in Avalon, there's two other stores in Avalon, they'd call them up. Do you got crabs? All right, we're going to send you some of our customers over because we're all out. That's what they do down in South Jersey. That won't happen up in North Jersey. They would tell you, we are completely out of crabs and there's no one in the city who has them. <laughs> That's what they would tell you in, in North Jersey. They're not going to help that guy down the road. No way. 
So it's just very, very different. But, um, of course, you know, with, with cars and things like that, going from South Jersey to North Jersey is not a big deal when you're walking. That's a whole different thing. So put it in, uh, in that perspective. Maybe that's where they get the idea of Florida to New England. I don't know, don't know exactly. But whatever the case, one lone member of the family, you know how much the Jewish people respected and, and liked their family ties. And he moves north. I kind of fall on the side that God told him, I need you to move. Why? I, I need you to move. I need you up in this area for right now. And so he picks up the family. God told me we got to move. I'm going on this assumption, just kind of going it this way. God told us we got to move. So he picks up the family and they move on up to the northern area and there they are. And can you imagine the family coming out? Why did we move? What are we doing here that's so important? I mean, these people worship idols all over the place. This is terrible. Why did you bring this into this environment? I mean, it's hard for us to even find people. And then we got this king who's just oppressing the whole northern area. He didn't, I don't know that he oppressed all of Israel, but I know he oppressed that northern area quite extensively. Why, why are we dealing with... that? We weren't dealing with this so much down in the south area. Why did we move again? Why can't we move back? God told me, and this is where we're supposed to be. And so it's just kind of throw in there one verse, verse 11. Then it seems to have absolutely no impact. And then we just keep going on with the narrative. Setting the stage for the battle. But it says, in verse 11, Now Habir, the Kenite of the children of Hobad, Hobad the, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites, pitched his tent near the terebinth tree, at Zanium, which is beside Kadesh, and they reported to Caesarea right back into the battle. Just that one verse. Just kind of plucked out, thrown in there. Interesting. Verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is a day in which the Lord has delivered Caesarea into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Kind of nice when you get this story and there's no detail. I mean, it would be the same thing as watching the Hallmark Channel. And they start off with this beautiful love story. And then you go right to the end and they fell in love and got married. Wait a minute, what? What happened to all the stuff that happened in between? I mean, that's what you watch the Hallmark movie for, for all the stuff that happens in between. You want to see the, the conflict? You want to see the bad guy who's not supposed to marry the girl? You want to see him come up? And you want to see him get knocked out of the picture? And you want to see the rise of the, the good guy who's supposed to marry the girl? And then, of course, they're going to run into a conflict. Somehow they were dishonest with each other, and that will come out in the, um, in the movie, and of course they will be highly upset about it, and you're thinking, why in the world are you this upset over this thing? But despite that, that's the, that's the, that's the movie. But we want all that stuff in the middle. So we just kind of went through a Hallmark movie, and we saw the beginning, and then we saw the end. Why did, why did we not get any details? No, we didn't. This is how it goes. Read it over again in case you missed it. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. 
And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. It's kind of like if you were reading the book of Exodus and we come to the children of Israel and we say, and they come to the Red Sea and they crossed over and the entire Egyptian army died. Would you feel gypped if that's all that you got of the story? I mean, I would feel gypped. I mean, they crossed, how did they cross over? What happened to this powerful Egyptian army? How did it get wiped out? We don't, we don't know what happens here. We just know that they went down, went into battle, and they, um, and they beat them. Now the particular area that they had this, uh, fight on was a plain. Now if you're gonna go into battle with chariots, would you pick the plain or the mountains? If you were going against the chariots. If you're going against the chariots, what would you pick? I'd want to be in the mountains. Because chariots kind of get nullified when you get in the mountains. When you got some trees, some rocks, some other stuff. But when you just have flat ground, it's a plain. Kind of gives the advantage to the chariots. So God says, that's where we want to fight them. Right down there on a nice flat plain where those chariots can just kind of roll unobstructed right at you. Now, if you're Barak, would you you call this plan of God into question? All right, we can only have 10,000 guys. They have chariots. We have no chariots. And we're going to fight them on a plain, a flat area, an area for which they can just roll those chariots right at us and over us. God, are you sure this is where we want to fight them? I mean, why don't we fight them in the in the other areas? I mean, and then all we get on the whole thing is they beat them, and they won. Be kind of like. Tuning into the Rocky movie. Tuning it in, finding out Rocky's going to fight Apollo for the second time. And then you get to the end and Rocky wins. This is what I feel like happens here. So what we had to do is we had to go and, and read some other places to find out what happened. Because we can find out what happened, but not here. <laughs> they don't tell us what happened here. So if we go over to Judges chapter 5 and verse 4. It says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The cloud also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord. This Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. In verse 21, it says, the Kishon River swept Sisera's men away. The old river, the Kishon River, marched on my soul with strength. And in the verse that we read, we saw that the king left his chariot to run away on foot. If you are fleeing the police, do you A, stay in the fast car, or B, leave the fast car and run? (laughs) I mean, generally, if you are in the faster vehicle, you have a better chance at getting away. That is generally better, especially if your name is 007, or um, who are Jason Bourne, 
Yeah, he can get away on a bicycle. <laughs> he's, he's all right with that. But the only reason that you leave a perfectly good chariot on a flat area to try and outrun the enemy is there something's wrong with the chariot. Sounds like something's going on here. So what we find out is that God says, we're going to have this battle on the plain. And Deborah, she says, today's the day. Go out there and fight. And so they're going down there and they fight. And today does not look like any other day. Or just the same as any other day. It's the same. We're on the plane. But then all of a sudden, the skies opened up and it poured. Now, if you were on the plane, apparently it doesn't get a whole lot of rain on the plane. And it pours water down on the, the plane. It's going to get muddy. Well, now, chariots are not at an advantage. We all know what happens with chariots and mud in the Egyptian army. And plus, beside that, some of them just kind of got, uh, the wheels kind of came off. But you know, God is the one who dried that up. God is the one who can make that all wet again. So they're getting stuck in the, in the area and it just was not going too well. So, uh, if you ever think of going to war against God, don't bring a chariot. He knows how to mess with them. He's, he's, he knows how to take the chariots out. So leave the chariot home. Of course, you're better off just staying at home, but if you are going to go to war with God, that's not a, a good way to do it. So he leaves a perfectly good chariot or something happened to the chariot. So in the song that Deborah sings, we find out some of what happened in the battle. That God says, that's where we're going to fight it. He didn't tell anybody I'm going to bring rain and that the river is going to swell up and the river is going to wash the, the people away. He didn't tell anybody about that. He just says, go out there on the plane and fight the battle. Yes, sir. And they go and they do it. We never hear that he brings up any questions at all. We just hear that he, whatever God says, now's the time, let's go. I don't know how today is any different from yesterday, but apparently that's what he said. They're not looking at any clouds in the sky, but all of a sudden, Clouds came, and the deluge came. And what they thought was a certain area of victory, a certain victory, did not turn out that way. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth, Hagoyim, and all the army of Syria, Sisera, fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Now, this is not a total victory. It's the beginning of a total victory. But it is not a total victory because it is not all of the army of this particular king. He has more. But all the army that came after them that day, they wiped them all out. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber. Oh, we heard about him before, didn't we? The Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So, <clears throat> he leaves on foot. Now, how good is this that the commander of the army leaves the battle and all the men stay behind and die? What do you think is going to happen to him when he goes back to the Canaanite king? You know, the captain's supposed to go down with the ship. General should go down with the army. He decided to, to not. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to try and save my life. 
And so he fled away on foot to this particular tent of this woman named Jael. Now, it's not common for a man, if he comes to the tent, that he would come to the woman's tent. Because apparently, the women had their own tent. Then the, the men had their tent. They had, I mean, think man caves are a new thing. <clears throat> men had their tent. The woman had their tent. And that's how they, how they did it. Now, I am told that generally, it was the women's job to set up the tent. So when you got you moved camp, that's what you had to had to do. Now they have been in this area. We don't know when they moved. We know it was sometime before this, but they've been in there long enough to have some interactions with this particular king and to obey peace with him. So Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, had been they're kind of like being um Switzerland, kind of like neutral. They're just um we don't want to take sides in this battle. We don't want to be victims in this battle. You know, Switzerland didn't work out so good for um, the people there. They got taken over anyway. But here, they were still at peace with them. So when he comes to them, he says, I need to go to a, a people we need to, we have some peace with. I know that there's these people here. We have peace with them. I will go to them. This is not a whole group of Canaanites. This is one family who's got a few tents. They're over by a particular tree. And that's where he goes for. He says, just hide me. They won't think to look here. If anybody comes out, well, let's go over and see what he says. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not fear. When he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened up a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. I've heard a lot made about that. Uh, giving him milk. He asked for water, right? But she gave him milk. So some people, uh, I've read on the, in the years past, they thought that, well, she's being kind of disrespective. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what I want to give you. And then other folks say that she gave him, that she upped it. That she gave him something better than what he asked for. Uh, treating him with respect. I don't know which one to believe. All that, I do know this, that in the Song of Deborah, she says, <laughs> he asked for water, she gave him milk. So, it may be more on the scoffing part than on the honor part, just because of what Deborah said about it. I don't know what to tell you, though, on that one. But the Bible makes a very particular point to let you know that he asked for water, and she gave him milk. So the Bible wants you to know that she did not give him what he asked for. So I'm not sure why that's... Um, I don't know that I know all the things that are necessary to know exactly why that's so important. But anyway, maybe she gave him warm milk. wanted him to go to sleep. That would, that would help him. Uh, I don't know. She covered him with a blanket. He asked for a little water. Gave him milk. So, um, and he said to her, stand at the door of the tent. And if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there any man here? You shall say no. Then Jael, Habir's wife, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him, tipped up to him, tiptoed up to him and drove the peg into his temple. 
And then it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. And so he died. Now she grabbed that because it's the woman's job to put up the tents. So she knows how to handle a tent peg. You ever seen somebody grabs a tent peg and tries to put that in the ground first time ever doing it? They whop their hand a couple of times and so forth. But you get somebody who knows what they're doing and they just set that thing up and bam, they just took that. Well, that's her. She knows how to handle a tent peg. She may not know how to handle a sword. She may not know how to handle a spear. She may not be very good if she was behind the wheel of a chariot. But I know how to handle a tent peg. (laughs) And so she goes in there and she kills the guy. Now think about this before we go on with this. Whose job was it by the call of God to slay this king? It was Barak's job. It was his assignment. God intended for him to do it. But he had to say, you got to go with me or I'm not going. So then Deborah says, fine, but the glory will go to a woman. And you may, he may have thought she meant her. She didn't. She meant another woman. So think about this. If God led this family to move north some years before, one year before, 10 years before, 15 years before, I don't know how long, however long it was before, for all those years, they made the move and went to the northern area. And they are nothing more than a backup plan. Because the primary plan is Barak. And so God says, I'm going to move a backup plan into place. And he moves this family from their comfy place down here in the south all the way up to the north to do nothing but sit there and wait. <laughs> so I, I like to put myself in their positions. If I am this woman, if I am this man, if I am this family, and we're following the call of the husband God, God said to move north. And here we are, and we are doing nothing for the kingdom of God. And we're surrounded by idolaters. The idolatry here is worse than it was in the south. The oppression is worse, but we made made peace with this king. What good is all that? And every day they get up and they take care of the flocks. They get their food for the day. They mend their tents, clean their clothes, and they start another day. And that's all they're doing. And he may even say, God, why am I here? Just wait. I called you here. I need you here. Just wait. And they stayed. What if he got tired of being in that area? God, I'm tired of this. You told me to come here. You told me to move here. And all I'm doing is sitting here. Why am I sitting here? What possible good could I be doing? Then all of a sudden, one day, 
came the day when the entire move made sense. And the commander of the enemy's army was brought right into their property. A people that they had made peace with. They are not a nation. They are a family. And the nation that this king is over is at war and oppresses the nation of Israel. So they've had to separate themselves from the nation of Israel. We are not of the nation of Israel. We are Kenites. We are from this area of the world. We're not from Abraham. From here. They had to make a separation. Otherwise, why would he have made peace with them? They have to know these are not Israelites. These are different people. So they established that independence from Israel. Dad, why, why do we make peace with this, with these evil people? Because that's what I was supposed to do. But they're the enemies to Israel. Why are, we, why are we at peace with them? That's what God told me to do. I mean, why else is he making peace with them? And of all the nations, all the people that are around there in the nation of Israel, all the other tribes, they're being oppressed by these group. But this one family by the tree, it's not. They're just there. And after this great epic battle in which God pours out water, raises up a river to sweep these guys away, and Barak slaughters all the rest of them, even though they are outnumbered and they have far inferior equipment. They still won the battle, but they did not get the commander of the army. And they want to get him. In fact, he is out looking for them. He's going to find them. And he wanders upon this woman's area. And she sees him. And she goes out almost like she's expecting him. Almost like she's, she's waiting for him to come. Was she alerted? God says, hey, this is why you're here. i got a call on you. Someone's coming your way. I want you to kill him. Now think about this. You are one family who has separated yourselves from the Israelites. And you are now making war with this group. How's that going to go for you? Word's going to get around that you are the one who killed the commander of the army. I don't think they're going to be at peace anymore. But they've separated themselves from Israel in order to make this peace. So what's the future for them now? But she's a backup plan. She's a backup plan. Barak is supposed to be the guy who takes them out. But because of the words of his mouth, he became disqualified. And immediately, Deborah says, it's all right, I've got somebody else who's going to take him out. She's already in place. She's already where, needs, where she needs to be. She's going to do it. You see, that's too late to move up from the south country into the north country and set up your tent. That had to be done way before. You had to make the peace treaty. You had to make this guy feel comfortable in coming over to your place, seeking refuge 
and then taking them out. But she was the backup plan. Suddenly, wondering all this time, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Why are we in this place? Suddenly, a great purpose came her way. I'll put this in your outline for you. How many people have been moved into a backup role and abandoned their post for lack of purpose? How many people has God put into a place that, look, I need you as a backup plan because so-and-so might disobey me and they might go in the wrong direction. And if they do, I need you. Now, Barak did not go in a direction that says, God, I will not kill him. If he came up to him, he would have killed him. He lost that position simply because he said, I won't go unless you go with me. And then we went to the backup plan. So the backup plan is not there because Barak is not willing to be obedient. The backup plan is there for the only purpose. He disqualified himself from being the one for glory. And we got this other person in place. If he never says that, if he never makes that statement, can you imagine being this family who made this move and is in this place, away from their family, away from their relatives, away from the people they grew up with. But they went to the post that they were supposed to go to and they manned it the entire time. And even though they were not needed, they were there. When they get to heaven, what do you think God says about them? You may not have seen what you did, but you were in the position I needed you to be. And you stay there. I think God would be grateful. Nothing better than having a grateful God for what you did. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, because everybody else is wiped out. There's only one guy they're trying to find. Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. So she saw Barak and she says, I know you're looking for. Come on, I got him. And he went into her tent. There lay Sisera dead by the, pe- the paganist temple. And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So it was the beginning of victory. It was not the, the end of victory. Just the beginning. But they began to become stronger. So this woman who had done this, Israel was now saying, oh, you guys, you are on our side. And so they would come under the protection of Israel who has now just become stronger than Jabin. So even though her own mind may be saying, if I do this, I make myself an enemy to the ones who have been the strongest. This isn't good for us. But God told her what to do and she did it. So after we look at all this, it seems that Deborah was head of the class. And uh, she was uh, the, the woman who killed. I mean, it, she did exactly what she was supposed to do. She seems to be at the head of the class. And then we have Barak. And about all those three people, only one guy gets mentioned. So I put this question in there. What is the great faith of Barak? What does the writer of Hebrews think about putting him in there. I might have put one of the other two people in there. If I'm going to bring up this story at all, 
And again, if I was the writer of Hebrews, I don't even know if I would have brought up the story. But he brought it up. Mentions Barak anyway. Because it seems that Deborah and Jael, they got greater glory out of all this than, than he does. But again, he wasn't in for it for the glory. I don't care. Basically, he says, well, first off, I put five things in here for it. First off, he heard what God said. Deborah didn't give him anything new. He already heard it. Number two is a big one. He prepared himself to obey what God said. He was ready. He was prepared. He heard what God said and he prepared himself to obey. He did not question what God said. Why are we going out in the plane? Why are we only taking 10,000 men? He doesn't question God. And that's a good thing. He was convinced of what God said. I never see him waver a moment that God told him to go out to battle. I never see him waver that God delivered them into his hand. I never see him waver. This is the day. This is the time. Go. He just, he just keeps going. He seems totally convinced to do whatever God said to do. And most of all, he did what God said. No getting around it. He did. He got 10,000 men. God said, get 10,000. He got 10,000. He said, go in the battle on the plane. He went to battle on the plane. He said, go today. He went today. He, he just kept going. And until he found that commander of the army, he was not stopping. He was not stopping until they were all taken care of. He didn't give it a half effort. He gave it a full effort. He did what God said. And he changed the course of history for Israel because from this point on, they began to get the upper hand on an enemy that had taken them out and oppressed them because someone obeyed. I don't know if I put this in your outline or if it's just in mine, but God can use someone else to do what he called you to do. But that doesn't get past the fact that you were called to do it. God may have backup plans in place. To do, if you step out, don't do it. But it doesn't get away from the fact that you were called to do it. So Barak had a, a backup plan, and that backup plan kicked in. But it doesn't get away from the fact that Barak was called to do it. But here's the thing. He didn't do the ultimate, but he still got into Hall of Faith. Kind of interesting. Not quite as much of a mention as some of the other people. But his name got in there. People are led into impossible situations by God for the purpose of promotion, not destruction. People are led into impossible situations by God for the purpose of promotion not destruction. That's the purpose. He's going to lead you into a Red Sea situation where you got the Red Sea in front of you, the army behind you, and two mountains on either side. Impossible situation for the purpose of promotion, 
not destruction. Now here's the here's the big thing. The enemy const yeah, the enemy constantly sees these situations as certain destruction and go all in leading to their ultimate devastation. God sets up the enemy constantly. I'm sure that the creator of Wiley Coyote read the Bible. Because this is what God does. He constantly leads the enemy into a place where they are convinced there is no other outcome but victory. And they go all in with everything that they've got and they lose it. Pharaoh goes in with his entire army and loses it in an instant. How many times do the enemies come against Israel and they bring everything they got because they are sure they will win and they lose everything. God will lead us into what looks like impossible situations because the enemy is convinced you cannot win. And he throws everything he's got against you. And God, in a short amount of time, wipes them all out. Barak may have had a confidence problem asking Deborah to go with him. Not really sure he's hearing the voice of God, I need you to come along with me. Tell me when. She says when. He goes. Might have had a confidence problem, but he does not have an obedience problem. Which tells me it's far more important that you are obedient than you are confident. So if the enemy ever gets you, you're not very confident in the things of God. It's okay. Did you obey? Because it is far more important to be obedient than it is to be confident. It's good to be confident too. Don't, don't sell that short. It's a good thing to be confident. But if, if you're going to come up short on anyone, don't come up short on obedience. That's the thing you got to do. And that's something that Barak never seems to come up short on. When God says, he goes. He does. He follows the instructions to the letter. That's exactly what God says to do. And doesn't even seem to mind when God says, all right, Glory's not going to come to you. You answered wrong. He still goes after it with everything he's got. I don't care if I'm not getting the glory. God asked me to do this. I'm going to do it. So he made his way into the Hall of Fame. So that's what we need to, to, to mimic. But sort of a sidelight on this thing is that backup plan. Have you ever been Are you now or will you ever be part of God's backup plan? And it's not a bad thing to be part of the backup plan. Because God can say, all right, well, if this one fails, we got this one right in line. And I know they won't fail. If you uh, listen listen to Keith Moore a lot, I remember the one story he told that God asked him to give some money and it was a stretch for him. It was not easy and he sowed what he was supposed to sow and gave what he was supposed to do. And for some reason, the question came up and it says, God, was I the uh, first one you asked about that? And I believe he, the answer he got in the spirit was, uh, no, you're about either six or seven. Somewhere in that neck of the woods. Man, 
Now, he, you could get offended and say, I wasn't the first guy. I wasn't the go-to guy. <laughs> you can get offended at that. <laughs> but you can also look at it that, hey, six people in front of me said no. I said yes. I may not have been the first or second choice because I was not in the best position, but in a worse position than the other people, I said yes. They said no. Hmm. Don't ever be afraid to be in God's backup plan. And just know God tells you to move from the north or from the south to the north and park your tent by this particular tree and wait there. Just do so because it might just be happening that a commander of an army might be wandering on by and you putting a little tent peg through his head will get your name remembered for your act of faith and obedience for thousands of years. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Her name is remembered for thousands of years. And even if you don't remember her name, remember the lady with the tent peg. Killed a guy. Because God put her in position. Father, if you ever have to call on us to be a backup plan, to be in a position in case the person called does not come through, I pray that we are willing to be that backup plan, to sit in a place where it seems like it's useless. But you told us to be there. And we will get up every day. We'll mend our tents, wash our clothes, tend the sheep, and get up the next day and do it again. Knowing that God put us here for a reason. And if we never get called on, God knows we were here and we were ready. I don't know how many times in our lives we have been a backup plan and never got called on and we weren't needed but we were there. We listened, we heard and we were there. When we get to heaven just the fact that we were willing and obedient to be in that place I know Father that's a place of reward. So, Father, I thank you that we can be the primary or the backup plan. Wherever we are, we can keep our attitude one of being willing, being obedient, and being prepared. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Any comments, questions? Yeah. That's always the best way. I've always believed that God did not need backup plans. Apparently, He has them. Oh no, He actually. You go through the Word of God. There's a lot of backup plans. Really? Oh yes, very, very many. Because I always just figured that what happened was the plan. Nope. I'll give you just a couple. I'll rip off a couple of you. Rip off a couple for me. Uh, Judas. What do you mean, Judas? Judas. God had a backup plan. Because who was the backup plan? You mean that if if Judas didn't do what he did, he had somebody else. We ready, had somebody else ready to go in place. Ready to go. So yep. 
So who does, when Peter comes up in the book of Acts, we just read that over in our, our chapter readings. When Peter gets up, he says, this is prophesied in scripture that someone, that one of the twelve would betray and that to have another step in his place. So he said, who of those that are among us who walked with Jesus do we put? And they picked two. One was Matthias and one was Barnabas. And they drew lots and it fell to Matthias. And he fit in as the twelfth apostle. That was a backup plan. The primary plan was Judas. Who was the who was the king who was supposed to reign forever? That was Saul. But he disqualified himself. So who was the backup plan? David. In fact, the words of God are, "I will go." and seek out another. And he did. He sought out David. Now, we can look in, in fact, that, that God knew from the beginning that it was going to go down this way. And he even said, but the primary plan was Saul. And he disqualified himself. And the lot fell to David. Judas was picked and he disqualified himself and another was chosen. When Paul and Barnabas went out, who did they pick? John Mark. And he disqualified himself, so they got another. Okay, but... Okay, I get, I get the second one. The first one, somebody had to portray, portray Jesus, so it was going to be somebody. Mm-hmm. So, so it just seemed like the natural plan was that there was going to have to be a replacement somebody was going to have to betray him. So why would that be the backup? That would seem to be the plan to me all along. See, that's what I'm saying. That, that somebody was going to have to How many people did they have in place to take Judas' spot? There's actually more. They picked two. They picked two. They had a lot of people ready to take the place. Twelve were picked. But they had a whole selection of people who followed after Jesus. I am not one of the twelve. I am not one of the ones that are selected. People will forget me easily. But they still follow Jesus every day. Because they could not have been in Judas's place if they had not followed Jesus all the days. So we have how many people? Two, five, ten who followed Jesus and were never going to be called one of the twelve. They're the backup plan. They are a backup plan. Because what would have happened what would have happened if Saul would have repented and obeyed? He would not have gotten David. Mm-hmm. Do you think it is not possible for God to have taken Saul and somehow steered his lineage into the lineage of Judah and made the prophecies become fulfilled? 
And if God could not have, then was God at fault for selecting Saul and giving him a promise? No, we're not. But did God select Saul and did he give him a promise? Yes. And he failed. Saul failed. So the promise went to another. If the promise was not true and genuine, then God would not have made it. Because God does not make false promises. He doesn't give you something that he cannot fulfill. So there was a way to fulfill Saul as being that. I don't know how, but there was a way. And you can't use David's prophecies. You have to go in the prophecies that are before that. Because a lot of the ones that come from David are the ones we'll think about that talked about it being in that particular line. But the, the one with the scepter not, not leaving the house of Judah, I don't believe that comes from David. I believe it comes from, from times before. But most of the ones we're thinking about come after David. But God would not have made the promise. He could not have fulfilled it. So there are, are people who did not, did not step into place. Now you look at the, uh, when, when Paul was stopped on the road to Damascus, was God prepared to kill him? When Paul was stopped on the road to Damascus, was God prepared to kill him? Yes. If he does not repent and turn from persecuting the church, Paul was a dead man. So if Paul dies, who is the one who receives the revelation knowledge of the New Testament? There would have been someone else who would have received the call. I don't know who it was because they were never called on. But there was someone in place who would have received the call. Was that Barnabas? <laughs> we can, yeah, we can throw out all kinds of names, and uh, he may not even be mentioned in the in the Bible. But um, uh, and just think about this. I'll use God's own words out of this. When Elijah says, "I am the only one," what does God say? I got ten thousand guys ready to step in your spot right now. That's ten thousand backup plans for the man Elijah. And in fact, you know what? Go out there and anoint one of them. Right now, go out there and anoint one. He's going to take your spot. Got that? And here comes Elisha. Yeah, God's got backup plans. Because people don't come through. But he wants you to have the opportunity. I have opportunities to obey God. And if I falter on it, I faltered first. Then God chose the other guy. Or gal, whoever it might be. But yeah, you can, you can think through. I haven't mentioned all of them, but there's still other backup plans. There's other people who are ready to step in. What if Moses said no? What if Jesus had said no? It's a whole different level there. <laughs> I don't think there's any backup plan for that one. But if you're going to rely, if you're going to, if you're going to count on anyone, I'm going to count on my son. My son's going to come through for me. <laughs> He's going to come through. But, um, yeah, there's backup plans. 
That's all, all through the Word of God. And there are people who, um, who came through. There are people who gave their life and died. So when they died, what happens? Someone else has got to take their spot. Their spot. Somebody else has got to take their place. We raise up somebody else. There's people who say that Matthias was not, he was not a very good selection. Ananias? He was a prophet. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that he followed Jesus. I don't know that he followed Jesus. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was, God sent him to tell, you know, to, to uh, cancel Paul. Right. But um, I believe he was chosen by God. I believe he was spoken by. I don't know that Ananias followed Jesus all his days. I'm not talking about Ananias. Oh, you think of Paul. Well, Paul didn't follow Jesus any day, so he didn't qualify. He was completely unqualified to be one of the twelfth disciples. That was from... Well, the verse that Peter quotes is from the Old Testament. The purpose of the twelve disciples was to testify of the works of Jesus, which you can only do if you saw them. We're not talking about he he wants he wants personal first hand witnesses. So Paul would never qualify to be one of the twelve disciples. But Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, which is not what the twelve disciples or twelve apostles became. They were to the nation of Israel. But Paul had a different calling. And so his, uh, he, w- he would never have qualified to be the twelfth apostle. Plus, he wasn't even born again at the time. And the purpose was, and, he, and Paul, Peter was right in doing it. I mean, God un- anointed the whole thing. It's the, what was going on. It was, we, we had to pick somebody. So who from among us should we pick? Barnabas? They picked two out of the group that they had. Yep. They drew lots, which is, which was an Old Testament way of doing things. Yeah. Well, there's people who want to say that Matthias wasn't the, the true pick, but Matthias gave his life for the, for the gospel. And if you ever do some church history study, you will find out Matthias was not a do-nothing guy, which is what some people try and say of him. Because in the book of Acts, we don't have him doing anything. But you go outside the book of Acts and you find out he did stuff. He was not idle. He was very involved and he died for his faith and died for his testimony. So he was, uh, and so did, so did Barnabas. 
he did the he did as well. So you have a lot more of the disciples who followed after Jesus who died and gave up their their life for the faith, not just uh, not just the twelve. <laughs> but it's a good, I mean it's it's a common thing that people like to debate Paul being that one, but he didn't qualify. Their specific purpose was to testify of the works of Jesus, not just to be an apostle of the church. Paul picked up the role of apostle of the church and took the church message of the church, took the message of the church. He did stuff that the other twelve did not do. But his his call into the apostleship was very unique and very different from theirs. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. <laughs> well, the fact that he was, uh, he was, he wasn't witness of the works of Jesus. I mean, he might have been what twelve years old. He still was. He was still, you know. He was. He was about as old probably as the other disciples were. Yeah. But um, he he was an enemy of Jesus. Yeah, he didn't. <laughs> I can't think of where it is right now, but yeah, they. Yep. And that was the specific purpose of those twelve. They were eyewitnesses of the things that Jesus did. I saw this, and Paul could not do it. Timothy could not do it. Titus could not do it. None of those guys could could be eyewitnesses of what Jesus had done, because of when they got saved, it was afterwards. They were not in a position. They didn't follow him. Whatever it might be. Um, and that's the specific group that they took from. I have 11. I have 11 witnesses because the 11 disciples said, this is the way it needs to go. <laughs> and so they, they went that way. <laughs> oh, man. You guys are fun. All right. Well, you got some stuff to chew on for the backup plan there. But um, I, I, I couldn't get away from that. This, this lady is a backup plan. And it didn't fall to her until he said those words. And they were in position years before. Just amazed me. Because why else did this, this is one family move to this place? Because they, they just don't do that. She's like a Jones Block type. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. Don't know anything about her except for what happened on this one day. That's all we got. That's true. Gideon was only in, but she didn't make it into the book. She didn't. Make it into the book, she didn't I kind of think that um, her or Deborah should have made it into the book a little bit more than Barack should have. But um, anyway, that's who we got. I'm not going to argue with the with the writer here. He's he's got reasons. He's he's got what he's he's saying there. But boy. Yeah, I don't know. I. I thought there was something in Hebrews that alluded to. No, yeah, there is something in specific in Hebrews that's, um, but only one, only one reference to it. Women received their dead. What was the question again? She said maybe he only likes males. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but um, uh, what is it? Verse thirty-four. Women received their dead. Yeah. 